Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. It's Fall from the South with Steve and Fab. Hey, everybody. It's Four from the South. I'm back here with my co-host, Fabrizio Capano. Fab, are you there? Fabrizio, hello. We're having some trouble with Fab. He's over there in New York where the internet doesn't quite work. It's an extension of uh, greater Latin America. The infrastructure sometimes breaks down over there in Manhattan. Hopefully we'll hear from him later on in the show. But we also, luckily for us, have a guest, Daniel Besner. Hi, Daniel. How you doing, man? Good, good. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Now, you are a podcast host yourself. I am. You host a show called American Prestige. Is that right? Yes, it's it's sort of a, a heterodox left-wing foreign policy podcast. Uh, that's the idea behind it. And actually, our friend Nando was the one who inspired slash encouraged me to do it. So, uh, it, and it's been doing well. So that's yeah. Good. We thank Nando for sending you our way. Um, <clears throat> so, tell us a little bit about what you've been talking about on American Prestige. Is it a news podcast? Do you uh, just follow the news of the week? Do you go deep dives on America's? Uh, somewhat sordid history um it's uh it's a little bit of both so we do basically like a 15 minute 20 minute news breakdown kind of uh international affairs the most important news of of that week and from you know again kind of from a left-wing perspective assuming what if the united states didn't run the world how would one view this um and then we usually do an interview a deep dive on a on a particular subject related to u.s foreign policy or international affairs so in recent weeks we had an episode on sort of the deep history of cuba from the 15th uh 1500s to the war of 1898 in 1898 we did one with patrick wyman on the reformation then we also try to do more fun ones so we've got a bonus episode coming out this week on you don't mess with the zohan uh and sort of adam sandler's role (laughs) as uh you know as 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 a you know paradigmatic jewish comedic actor probably the last you know really big uh actor so yes we try to run the gamut but you know while having fun you know okay so tell me what road led you to hosting a left skewing podcast where'd you come from what 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 kind of politics were affecting you growing up Tell no, me. absolutely. So I grew up in um, South Brooklyn and uh, Rockaway, Queens. 
for most of my childhood. Okay. So Bensonhurst and Rockaway. Uh, and my parents are sort of, you know, middle class um, Jews who had the, you know, particular politics of, of the baby boom generation. They're sort of mid baby boomers, um, you know, so was concerned with Israel in the 90s and, you know, voted for Bush in the 2000s, but are now like liberal Democrats. And I, I grew up with them mostly being liberal Democrats. Uh, when I was, I went to college in Manhattan and then my senior year of college, I interned at the council on foreign relations and that was 2006. And so, uh, I sort of started thinking, why is anyone, why, why are people listening to these, these people? They don't seem to really know what's going on. Um, and then I, I worked a job after college for six months and I said, I don't want to do that again. And so I went to graduate school in history. Uh, and then, and I, uh, I went as a European historian, but I, I became interested in U.S. foreign policy. So I found a subject um, that really uh, expressed that interest. And it was it wound up being about the, the forming of the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California, which was the first oh, national wow. security think tank. Yeah, so I've been like deep in the Rand archives. Um, and I've got a couple of pieces coming out about then. Uh, and so just, you know, naturally, I think over the course of my graduate career, um, the guy that I focused my first book on was actually a socialist who became a Cold War liberal. And I wound up reading a lot of socialist theory. And so um, in, in around 2007, 2008, when I was really deeply reading all these socialist debates, I, I became, you know, a genuine left winger. Um, I, I defined myself as sort of the left wing of the Weimar era social democratic party. Uh, and, you know, from there, you have the whole socialist revival and this whole media ecosystem. And so like a good capitalist, I'm taking advantage. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Tell me about the Council on Foreign Relations. My whole life I've been hearing about it. I don't really, I, uh, as far as I can tell, do they have a building? Is, is there a structure? They do. It's a really nice it's a building. Club. Do you know Manhattan? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's on six. Yeah. I think it's on 68th and Madison, or just right off Park. Um, I haven't been there okay. in a while. So plenty of money has oh, gone yeah. into this organization. Uh, yeah. they were, From where? They were founded um, basically in advance of uh, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Woodrow Wilson put together a group called the Inquiry which was a group of academics okay. that were to prepare him for the peace conference. Um, after then they put, wrote a lot of reports. And so I believe it's in 1921 um, after the peace conference that uh, a bunch of those people come together, um, you know, their classic East coast establishment, what we would today call the Acela corridor. Um, but uh, kind of a little bit more centered in New York because there's a lot of businessmen and, and finance people. And they created this group called, called the council on foreign relations, which was part of this larger progressive era project to bring expertise and social science to bear on foreign policy making. So they create this group. Uh, another one you might've heard of is, the Brookings Institution, which was founded, I believe, in 1916 as something else, the Institute of Government Studies, something I used to know that, but something along those lines. And so there's this like turn toward expertise in U.S. foreign policy, but it's really only after World War II um, that that sort of thing takes off with the founding of the Rand Corporation. You get a, a network of think tanks that pepper Washington, D.C., um, and, and New York as well. And, and uh, you know, Rand was in L.A. and Santa Monica and so elsewhere around the country, but really centered in Washington, D.C., um, and there's a lot of money put into them, uh, both by the American government, um, which essentially outsourced its research function to think tanks, right? Like, um, uh, uh, and, and, and foreign government. And, and the thing that I think if one people's interested in this, um, I think that, um, what's important to note is that the American state is very peculiar because it incorporates a, a lot of, um, private 
you know, not really private, but formally private institutions like think tanks. And so, you know, what think tanks are, are performing state functions, like doing research on foreign policy and providing, you know, the force structure ideas and things like that. So that's also why it's very difficult to quote unquote, take on the American state, because it's not just centered in the institutions of official Washington, but it's centered in, you know, like I said, think tanks, but also academic research centers, private consultancies, things along those lines. So the American state, um, what what the state builders did in the middle of the 20th century was as they tried to build the, build this state they they sort of incorporated american conservative ideas that were skeptical of state power what they did was they built a state that is both public and private and i think this is what we a lot of people who who just follow american politics miss is that you know a lot of reporting on what happens in the state department or defense department or white house misses a lot of the story um because so much of what is government function uh, what is a properly a government function takes place outside of the formal structures of the state and think tanks like the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, are part of that process. Gotcha. Okay. And what are sort of the assumptions or the thinking of the Council on Foreign Relations? Like, I assume there's not a ton of left-wingers over there. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I would say across <clears throat> the spectrum, the spectrum of left-wing and right-wing think tanks is that everyone assumes that the United States should rule the world. Um, what the okay, form of that leadership takes is different. So someone at the Council on Foreign Relations, a more sort of liberal think tank, uh, would say that it should be through multilateralism and in international institutions, but really the buck stops at the United States. Someone on the right would be more in favor of unilateralism and probably military force, at least as an initial, uh, something to initially go to, whereas the Council on Foreign Relations would be, you know, more in favor of things like liberal economic interdependence uh, and things along those lines. But uh, the foundational assumption, which is really, you know, the ontological position is the U.S. should dominate the world now and forever. And has there been any kind of um, reckoning with the last 20 years uh, or 20 years plus where that hasn't, that plan (laughs) hasn't been working out as well as it might have been plotted out at the end of World War II. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, I would say that what you're seeing now in the Biden administration is the embrace of a strategy of what I've been terming hegemonic stabilization. So you're seeing the reduction of uh, troops in places like Afghanistan, uh, and you're, you'll likely see it in uh, elsewhere around the world. Um, removing troops from areas not deemed vital to the U.S. interests, particularly as oil becomes less important to the U.S. economy with a turn toward domestic energy production and probably at some point getting off fossil fuels in the next 20, 30 years, um, or we'll just cook the planet and then it doesn't really matter. Um, I think you're seeing the reduction of troops from there, but I think there's no uh, change or transformation in what I consider the structure of the empire, which is really what the 750 bases, overseas bases, you know, the hundreds, you know, orders of magnitude more than any other nation has, and the enormous defense budget. Uh, which speaks to a lot of domestic interests. So uh, again, you're seeing some slight transformation in light of the failures of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, um, Syria, Yemen, the list goes on and on. But the whole structure is remaining relatively in place, and as is the ideological uh, structure that supports this imperial project. As an actor, a producer... And a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey, everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. 
And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of Michael Tudor Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tudor shows wherever you get your podcasts. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I was <clears throat> shocked the other day. I picked up the New York Times, which I don't always do. And it was Sunday edition. This was two weeks ago. And there was a huge, long feature story in the, I think, ideas section or whatever. And it was a criticism of Joe Biden's foreign policy. And the person writing it was Anne-Marie Slaughter, who oh, had been yes, Hillary that, Clinton's, yeah. I think, director of policy planning at the State Department. I was like, what a... What on earth is the where the, the critic of Joe Biden is like somebody who has a career of, I think we could say, confidently pretty failed policies. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, and, and she's much more of a weather vane than anything. I, I think in the 1990s, she might have been proactive and looking to make her, you know, uh, exert her will on the world as it were. But at this point, she's just a professional and, and, and a weather vane. So I think you're going to be getting some, you're going to see some calls for restraint. But you know, this is a pod about Latin America, the US is going to continue to dominate Latin America to the best of its ability as it has for, you know, well over a century, um, the US is going to t- continue to maintain the bases, it's going to continue to maintain the nuclear arsenal, the defense budget, the full-spectrum military. So where things really matter, I don't think any much has changed. And I think, like, just to put a fine point on it, I think that's because Americans, since the advent of the all-volunteer force in the early 1970s, most Americans, particularly the bourgeoisie that makes decisions, are just shielded from anything that the military does, so it doesn't really matter to them. Uh, and this has only been magnified by the increasing turn to mercenaries. 
Um, so the American military winds up serving as a training ground for the future mercenaries of the world. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. But uh, for, for the policymakers, all this does is shield um, ordinary Americans from it. So they could, the military could do whatever the hell it wants. No one's really affected by it. No one that quote-unquote matters is. Okay, so as you say, this is a podcast about Latin America, so I do want to get your take on a couple of things going on in Latin America. I've been hearing a lot about Havana syndrome, and I haven't dug into the science, but it seems a little sus. I don't know what's going on, but allegedly uh, U.S. diplomats and things are getting sort of <laughs> brain poisoned by some kind of energy weapon uh, coming from the Cuban uh, intelligence or something. That's sort right. of the the log line of the story that I hear. Uh, like I said, <laughs> speaking I of log lines, sounds like you are. I, I had a <clears throat> I had a good idea. I think well, maybe it's not a good idea. A good idea for sort of like a low budget horror movie where it's a deep state person who thinks they have more gelins, but they actually have more gelins because I think all of these <laughs> all of these people are basically expressing their profound anxiety as being members of 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 a project that it's really hard to morally defend in the year 2021. And so what they're doing is a, is I think literally just having um hysterical in the sense of the 19th century, you know, undiagnosed kind of mental anguish over it that's reflected in things like Havana syndrome. Gotcha. Okay. Now why, what is Biden's policy on Cuba? Because it seemed like Obama, Obama went to Cuba and it seemed like <coughs> so, he was cool um, with opening up Cuba, took a lot of criticism for it. Obviously I know that, um, in the swing state of Florida, Cuban politics is kind of this hot potato, so nobody wants to mess with it too much. But it seems like Fidel Castro is dead. Uh, what is our? What is our? Where? Where is the U.S. at with Cuba? Where are we going? What's the story? Uh, yeah, no, I mean it's a it's a great question. Well, I think the Obama thing was really um, a function of Ben Rhodes, his deputy national security advisor, I believe he was, uh, and also the guy who actually uh, coined the term the Blob. He like really dedicated himself to opening up Cuba. Um, I don't. Think think Obama would have done it unless he had like essentially a right hand man really dedicate himself to it um, because there's not much in it I, again you know for for an American president there's only kind of a risk even though Florida is basically a red state at this point so like really what's the risk for a Democrat um, too bad Nando's not on here he could probably speak to that a bit more. But, uh, but yeah, I think that you're unlikely to see any change. I think you'll just putter along indefinitely until someone else with the political will really makes it a, a, a an important issue. But until then, I think status quo. Gotcha. Okay, so we're not doing anything on Cuba. What else are you seeing going on in the Biden administration's policy to Latin America? I mean, where we've got... It seems like in every election in Latin America is a like far right kind of populist against a leftist. They sort of go back and forth. The U.S. kind of half-heartedly uh, supporting the overthrow of the regime in Venezuela, but losing the enthusiasm that may have been there in the Trump administration. You don't see half-baked coup attempts the way we did uh in the Trump years, what's up? Do we have a big? Do we have any kind of big picture thinking about Latin America? Who's in charge of this over in the Biden administration? What's up? So, so what? From what I could tell, there really isn't any big picture thinking in the Biden administration outside of reducing troops in in the Middle East, which for some reason includes Afghanistan, uh, and and making the so-called pivot to Asia. I think Latin America, as it has long been in, in the American imagination, is just considered to be part of the U.S.'s remit, um, and so uh, you'll see the U.S. Uh, effectively do what it wants um, 
and my guess is we won't know everything that goes on there, but uh, undermining local governments that threaten perceived U.S. interests related to the transfers of capital and security and quote-unquote terrorism, which has been basically folded into the issue of refugees. Um, so that that's what I think uh, you're going to see. But really, no, uh, no big picture, picture thinking kind of status quo continuations uh, of what's been going on um, in Latin America for for the past few years. Okay, do you have any perspective, Daniel, on the so-called border crisis, migrants at the U.S. border? I saw that uh, Biden had more or less just kept up the Trump mm-hmm. policy of trying to keep everybody in Mexico as long as possible. And it does seem like most of these migrants are coming from Haiti or Central America rather than from Mexico. I mean, illegal Mexican immigration doesn't even really seem like it's a significant issue at the moment, although there is illegal immigration that is sort of more or less stopped at or attempted to be stopped at the U.S. Uh, Mexico border, but it's not actually Mexican people. What's going on there? What can we be doing about this? Well, I think. What's your analysis <coughs> of that situation? Well, I mean, I think. Or is it just media hype and it's not, it's the, the border's always been porous? And well, I mean, that's the, the border has always been porous, but I think that the, the way that I view the issue of refugees is that the United States is the prime cause for a lot of their these population movements that you see, you know, from around the world. And you actually, it's not just, you know, people who are indigenous to Latin America who use Latin America to come through the United States. You're, you're also seeing increasing numbers of, of people from um, Pakistan or Afghanistan or elsewhere who aren't allowed into the United United States. So it, it's, uh, I think, a moral imperative uh, for the United States is the cause of a lot of these population transfers to do something meaningful about refugees, to do something meaningful about migrants. Um, I, I do not think that will happen. Um, I think you're going to see an increase, or a, maybe not an increase, because I think uh, immigration levels, particularly for Mexico, have declined. Uh, I think you're going to see um, the continued use of things like private prisons to house refugees, and, and it's really related to the prison industry. Industrial complex in the United um, in the United States. I think in a just world, there would be some sort of um, genuine money put toward a, a real resettlement program. You know, this is a gigantic country. You could even attach that to American jobs programs, which is something you know, like a, a lot of the, the areas that have been racked by deindustrialization could become resettlement areas, and you could actually pay local populations to help resettle people and do all of the services that that will require. But uh, again, because this doesn't seem to affect the people that matter, quote unquote. Um, I, I I don't think you're going to see much movement on, on anything. And I think one of the genuine travesties of, of the Biden administration has been the sort of mainstream status quo liberal on Twitter now totally ignoring refugees, which was this big moral issue during uh, the Trump. And um, even though not much has changed, uh, that's totally fallen off the news. Um, and I also want to mention, like, it's not like immigration was so great under Obama either. And so you you have the, these sorts of partisan associations with these um, really important moral issues that are then just totally ignored once the other party's in power. It's just, it's all, it's kind of, I, I, I mean, I don't want to be blackpilled, but it just shows how it's kind of all bullshit that no one really cares about anything and that politics is just a spectator sport. And I have more to say about that if you want to go into, you know, what I think is the fundamental political problem of our age. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. What's the fundamental political problem of our age? Um, I think that's, we have a structural issue, which is that we have 
the organizations and institutions of mass democracy that were created in the first half of the 20th century, you know, mass political parties, they go back to Andrew Jackson, but let's just say they're modern instantiation in the progressive era, uh, mass political parties, uh, a mass media, you know, mass cultural forms. Um, but as you have the rise of these sorts of mass institutions broadly defined, um, the way that power is actually exercised has become increasingly narrow. What do I mean by that? One, it's become increasingly centered in the literal White House. Um, Congress is less important than it's ever been. Um, but even more than that, it's been increasingly um, settled in the administrative state, you know, through norms and rules and bureaucracy, where a lot of power is actually um, enacted. So on one hand, you have the appearance of mass democracy. And on the other hand, you have the reality of how power operates. And so I think a, a good thing that really highlighted this to me was the effect of the um, anti-George Floyd uh, protest, uh, anti-murder of George Floyd protest, pro-justice you know, for George Floyd, which I think it's fair to say in retrospect were also um, in some regard anti-lockdown protests They that kind of converged at the same time. And uh, but I do think that the valence of that was you know reform of police, defund police, abolish police wherever you fall in that spectrum. But I think that what's happened is that often no, literally nothing or police funding has increased. And I think that just pure fact of like this this instantiation of mass democracy and like gigantic protests and the reality of what happened afterward just highlights the disconnect between what Americans think their quote unquote democracy is and what it actually is. And I think that's a lot of reason why everyone is going insane because all we talk about is politics. You know, this is the major discussion for educated elites who, who are on Twitter, i.e. the people who won make culture and the people who determine what political parties do, all we do is talk about politics, and, and we seem to have almost no effect on it. And another, I think, instantiation of that is Biden's refusal to cancel student debt, which is basically just spitting in the face of a natural constituency, which is college-educated people. And it's just because they don't matter. Where are they going to go, and how are they going to actually affect power? So we're in a moment where we talk about nothing but politics, but have no way to actually affect power. So we're all losing our minds. And where does that go? Not to force you to make a prediction, but where will that take us? Where does that go? I mean, um, I mean, frankly, barring a massive shift, I think we're just going to continue to cook the planet. Um, I think people are going to go increasingly nuts. Uh, I think that there's no real way to challenge the American state. Um, you know, it's not like 1848. If you face the American military, you're going to lose. Uh, and so I think nothing good. I, I mean, I think we're, we're in a really dark period in human history. Now, there could be some sort of exogenous shock. I, I can't predict that. Um, but given where the parties are now, I don't see much changing. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and we're reflecting on what matters most. I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. 
State Farm is also a big supporter of Michael Tudor Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tudor shows wherever you get your podcast. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Yeah, I wanted to ask you something. You're sort of like what we would call like a young intellectual uh, and, and uh, you know, people of our generation, formative first adult or young adult event, we probably experienced uh, 9-11, followed by a series of catastrophes in U.S. foreign policy. Um, there was a brief sort of, I'm giving my own interpretation, which you, you can feel free to correct, brief sort of sense that there might be some hope and change in the Obama election, uh, which I think has been followed by a, a sort of sugar hangover that nothing really improved or changed. Uh, the Trump election followed that is sufficiently depressing. It seems hard for me to imagine somebody in their 30s or 40s who would just become a Washington functionary or a young Council of Foreign Relations person, unless they were uh, 100% cynical. So who will be running this administrative state in the future? Is is there not a like hollowing out of the generation of people that would just uh, buy into the American imperialist project? <laughs> like, have we not just sort of broken that? It would be very difficult for me to imagine a 40-year-old young person who's like, yeah, rules-based American order still works. Let's stay the course. Or am I missing something? There's a whole world of those people eager to take those jobs in Washington or New York or wherever the, the state is forming itself. Well, I think <clears> there <throat> are a lot of people, but I think also you don't need that many people to run this thing at this point. You don't even need that many people to run the military. You know, this could be several thousand people. Um, you, you don't need, um, massive numbers. So, and there's certainly several thousand people and many more who, who would like to sort of run this uh, administrative state and run this bureaucracy. Um, and I think that a lot of people, you know, are just 
freaked out and precarious and, you know, all the Ivy League graduates uh, need somewhere to go. Um, so most go into finance, some go into law, and the, the, the rest go into running the administrative state of the status quo. I mean, I do think that you see, like, I could just tell uh, uh, even amongst, like, my social circle from college was was you, you do see sort of a, a recognition that this kind of thing is illegitimate, like the whole project doesn't work and it's cooking the planet. And if people have kids, they're worried about their kids, but also a sort of recognition about what are they going to do about it? Um, and so, uh, again, like I think Bernie Sanders was, was a, um, Bernie Sanders was kind of like a Hail Mary pass or trying to get an end run around that whole, um, problem. And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, um, what Bernie would have been able to accomplish and what he wouldn't have been able to accomplish. Um, and just full disclosure, I was a foreign policy advisor to his campaign. Uh, but, uh, I think that, um, things are grim. There are people to staff the state and nothing is really going to change. It seems to me like there's a space there for like, a sort of celebrity that's like half right wing, half left wing, like a McConaughey, mix and match them. What's that? Like a McConaughey. Like yeah, like sort of Bernie saying a guy who Tulsi Gabbard was almost getting there. Like just kind of a weird amalgam of politics that's neither Democrat nor Republican. Because I, I mean, I think when we when we talk about the average voter, even a sort of Republican voter is often kind of far left on topics like taxing the rich and stuff. It just doesn't get materialized into any kind of politics or political program. And it, it, even, you know, your Joe Rogans or something, there's a mixy match of leftists and libertarian ideas all cooked together. Do you not think that somebody could emerge to, to you, know, you know, I think Joe, Bernie Sanders was on the Joe Rogan show. Like, is there not a way to connect those two audiences and have a candidate for that? Or is that just never going to happen? Uh, I, it, I, I, it could happen. I'm not sure how much it would matter or where that person would naturally fit. Right. I guess maybe the Republican Party, kind of. Um, I mean, I think yeah. the Democratic, it would be very difficult for a figure like that to win a Democratic primary. Um, but I, again, like, I think Trump... I sort of had some hope that McConaughey might pick up this mantle <laughs> but in Texas. now he, uh, he, <laughs> he bowed out. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I think what Trump showed, and we'll learn more as more documents become available, but Trump showed, I mean, he also had no political will. Like, what does a Trump with political will look like um, and concentration? Maybe he has actually get things done, but, but it did show that kind of having a headless state, the state just putters along and does what it wants. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of that, but not, no, I, don't, I don't really see how a figure like that could, could emerge, let alone win a primary. Gotcha. I don't know if you've been following Dominic Cumming, the guy who is sort of the advisor to Brexit and then to Boris Johnson. He had a break with Boris Johnson, but one of his, uh, in his Substack and podcast interviews and things, he just goes off on how if you want to get anything done, you need to just shatter the bureaucracy in the first hundred days. After that, it's over. This, the sort of, uh, organ of the state will just continue to take over and you can have no no possibility of change. Slightly depressing, but also slightly radical uh, way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the question is, is that even possible? How would one do it? You'd have to really be yeah. a master of bureaucracy, and that's not exactly who's winning elections these days. Um, no. Yeah, I, I am very hopeless um, about anything. Change. <laughs> I, I joke with Nando. I'm like, that's why I'm all about hashtag content. Because uh, I think we're just going into the the brick wall of climate change. I'm really I I see um, no obvious way forward. Now again, there could be some sort of exogenous thing that I'm unaware of. Always very possible. 
um, but nothing that I could see right now. So walk me through how you see that playing out. Like, we'll just slowly, gradually, there'll be more floods, there'll be more migration, there'll be more... Yeah, basically, uh, yeah. Crops will fail. That's ba- Okay, a creeping yeah. thing, not a sudden apocalyptic crisis. No, I don't think there'll be a sudden apocalyptic crisis unless there's some sort of um, event that causes a, a food shortage or something along those lines. Uh, but I think in the United okay. States, um, in elite spaces, uh, we're not going to really experience uh, much. I think you'll see... The uh, you might see real city death in a place like Miami or areas of Louisiana and Florida. Um, you might see city death in coastal cities, in some coastal cities. But overall, I think the structure is going to be able to go on pretty much uninterrupted for a pretty long time. Um, I think it's going to be worse. Hundreds of years. That's hard to know. I would say fifty. You know, okay. I, at least fifty. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, okay. Cool. Yeah. No, I think it's yeah. There's really very little hope right now. This is real. I mean, okay, like you Daniel, just look at you have to go uh, look at like that. Just one Sorry, final thing. Going. Look at the COP twenty six climate Please. thing. You know, like they're doing nothing. They're just doing nothing. Yeah. Throwing a penny in the fountain. Yeah, I mean, truly, just <laughs> we're we're hopeless, man. Why not invite a leprechaun to the conference? Right. Oh, okay, Daniel. Thank you very much. This has actually been. I find it kind of inspiring to talk to anyone who's who's uh, you know even if the predictions are dire to have an independent, interesting mind who's working on them is always. Uh, uh, Makes me feel kind of good. I want before you go. I know you have to many important meetings today, but before you go, I want you to give us something that's hopeful or some place where you see inspiration or something that helps you get out of bed in the morning, even though you think that we're we're cooking ourselves and our political system's toast. Um, There's a lot of content to consume. You know, so I think yeah, content. You know, better than I ever, think yeah. I think you're going to see what I think is interesting. I'm not sure this is I'm not sure if this is positive or not, but I do think you'll start seeing legalization of sort of like um, uh, more drugs. I think you'll start see. Okay. I think you'll see uh, legalization of things like sex work. Um, I think you'll see legalization of vices, generally quote unquote vices. You know, uh, just using that as a term, not making any moral judgment, because I think as we you know slip into the abyss. Um, the government is going to have to uh, keep people occupied. So I think, you know, you're going to see liberalization yes. of laws um, in, in ways that could be positive for people's lived experience in, in actual life. Um, but yeah, and there's shit ton of fucking content coming out all the time. You know, I watched the Beatles documentary. There's <laughs> more things to distract myself. I've been, uh, sort of... Sh- <laughs> I've been shocked as I pay attention in a minor way to sports that basically the acceptance of sports gambling is close to 100%. I mean, it's not uh, here in California, we're going to have a measure on the ballot in, uh, I think, 2022 that's called something like Californian Solutions for Schools and Homelessness that's actually funded by DraftKings. <laughs> it's basically going to legalize uh, sports gambling here in California and it's coming in almost every state. And when you watch a sports broadcast, they're pretty open about talking about the spread now. Oh, of course, gonna, yeah. In a way that it used to be kind of like you didn't do that. Yeah, bookies are now legal. I mean, like bookies are effectively legal now and I think you're going to see more of that um, big time. So um, stuff like that and more content. That keeps me going. <laughs> Daniel Besner, where can people find you for more of your insights on American Prestige Podcast? Yeah, yeah. Check out the American Prestige Podcast. Subscribe to it. Uh, and uh, I'm at Twitter uh, on Twitter at D Besner. I'm going to follow you immediately. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening for Four from the South. We'll get Fab back uh, once we get uh, the infrastructure repaired. Although, if Daniel's predictions are right, maybe this is a permanent <laughs> outage. We'll never hear from Fab again. But hopefully, we'll have him on soon because there's a lot going on in Chile and Honduras and everywhere in Latin America. And we'll bring you some more of that on the next episode of Four from the South. Thanks very much, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
Four from the South is hosted by me, Steve Healy, and Fabrizio Capano. Robert O'Shaughnessy is our producer. Original theme song by Amy Stolzenbach. Four from the South is a production of Exile Content Studio in partnership with iHeartRadio's Michael Tura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens. But trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.